Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. Come on. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, in my attic in Brussels with a microphone and a recording device. And I'm Hugh Pope from my dressing room in northern Brussels as well. And we're joined today by Asla Aydantashbash, a senior policy fellow with the wider Europe program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She is in Istanbul with her microphone. And she writes about Turkey and its domestic politics and its role in our new and evolving world order. But Asla, welcome. And my first question for you is, so what is it like in Istanbul under lockdown? Hi, Olya. Good to be here talking to you from Istanbul, pretty close to the Bosphorus on a beautiful sunny spring day. The city has been pretty empty. There is an unofficial lockdown a stay-home order, we could say, in American terms. Basically, schools have been closed around mid-March, very soon after the first cases started appearing in Turkey. And subsequently, you also had restaurants and mosques. Of course, Friday prayers are important gatherings for a mosque-going community. All of these have been shut down, including universities, one by one, many establishments and businesses have closed down. But it's not a full lockdown. So during rush hour in in big intersections in the city, you would still see people taking the public transportation. And it's basically, it would be people working in factories, working in manufacturing still, and, you know, courier services, home delivery and postal workers. There is a bit of a criticism from the opposition that there hasn't been a full lockdown. But I think the government is trying not to shut down the economy simply because it's a big city, particularly Istanbul. Istanbul is the epicenter of the uh, outbreak at the moment. It would be very difficult for people to survive economically in case of a full shutdown. And I think very few countries have done a full shutdown. I mean, some have gone further than others, but it's not as though people are closing grocery stores. Well, it seems like there's a rule of thumb in the sense that if you ask people to stay home, or if you're going to impose a full shutdown, you need to provide for their livelihood, not for the entire society, because obviously there's, you know, middle class, a large middle class in Turkey, and that would have a cushion. But then you also have a significant portion of the society that would need direct income aid. And I think that's one of the difficulties that the Turkish government is facing, in part because this hasn't caught them in the best of circumstances in terms of Turkey's economic situation, the macro balances and central bank reserves. So they're trying to find this fine tuning between a voluntary self-quarantine and not so voluntary in some cases because people over 65 by a decree they cannot leave home and kids younger than 20 are also not allowed to roam the streets. So you have the middle ground that is people who have to go to work who do go to work. But let me just tell you in my neighborhood, I don't see a soul. I don't see anybody. My neighbors are telling me over WhatsApp that they haven't left their apartments in 
two weeks. So the city is really observing it. That sounds fascinating. Where does this leave Turkey and Turkish society in your mind? Are they imitating what they're seeing in Europe or are they imitating the more sort of brazen, this won't affect us of other countries further away? Or have they just developed a policy? Maybe they're not imitating anybody. Well, my own personal take on this is that we're doing better than Italy in the sense that the precautions that Italy started taking weeks after the crisis hit them. Turkey has taken them earlier, closing down restaurants, public gatherings, schools, etc. So in some sense, there is that element. There's also, I don't want to read too much into this, but a readiness to uh, follow orders in this case. I mean, people are really locking down. This is self-imposed in the sense that no one is out going for a walk. When you see people who are going to the supermarket on the street, very few of them, they are wearing masks. So uh, there is a readiness to actually follow the guidelines on this. It may be something that Turkish society is more prone to do, or it may just be that they're following the news. But I was struck by the fact that people are not deviating from these recommendations. So some countries have undertaken pretty large-scale prison releases in the face of COVID-19 because prisons can be such a breeding ground for viruses for all the obvious reasons. Others seem to be using the coronavirus crisis in part to crack down on the opposition. Turkey's been critiqued a great deal for the way that it deals with political activism. What's going on now? What is Turkey doing? Well, this is a very hot topic, Olya, in Turkey right now. In fact, there is a bill in parliament. The parliament is still open, although deputies are wearing masks also on the floor. It's quite a sight, by the way, trying to actually, even when they're talking on the podium, they're wearing masks. But there is a bill that the government has brought on. And the opposition uh, finds that the amnesty that the government is proposing is not enough, primarily because it does not include people you would consider political prisoners in the West. That is to say, mostly you know deputies or mayor, elected mayors from the pro-Kurdish party or people who are in doing time for sharing uh, material on social media and, of course, some journalists. Uh, now, all of these things, Turkey's anti-terror law is so vast that all of these people are, technically speaking, considered a terrorist by the government. Whereas in this case, we're talking about a group that has actually not been involved in an act of in any act of terrorism other than uh, expressing views in some cases, particularly with the journalists. So you have a very controversial situation. Yesterday, the parliament was very tense. I think the government had to negotiate this with their main ally, which is the ultranationalist MHP. So they kind of came out with a bill that excludes political prisoners, but is geared towards people who have either either done petty crimes, it includes uh, pregnant women, it includes people who have a couple of months left, I think six months or so. But of course, that's not what the public expected. So what about pregnant political prisoners? What happens to them? (laughs) That's a good question. I have to get back to you on that. That's a very good question. Well, it's just, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at Russia, and that's often, you know, women get a much more lenient sentences and gentler treatment, particularly if their parents than men do, even if the men are parents. So that's partly why I ask. This is a new phenomenon in Turkey. It's really been something that is discussed mainly on social media, but because there are women who are in prison with their kids. I suppose it was always the case, but now the numbers are more high profile 
particularly since the purge since 2016 failed coup attempt. So it's something that I occasionally see in social media feeds. They take their children to prison. They are allowed to take their children with them, but if only if the kids are below, I think, five, not, you know, if your kid is 12. But Asta said the government had an opportunity to rid itself of the burden of all these high-profile political detainees that it has and have made it so criticized in Europe and further away, and it hasn't taken that opportunity at all. I know. I mean, you would think that this would be a chance for a reset, both in foreign policy and in domestic affairs, but I think that the government has a different considerations that start with consolidating the domestic coalition they have built with, ultra, with the ultranationalists. I think that really does tie their hands. And I think that there is a sense that they want to marginalize the opposition that is the main opposition party, the secularist uh, CHP and HDP, the pro-Kurdish party, they find themselves in the same camp. I think one of the things the government always wants to do is to underline that this is a coalition, the opposition coalition is backed by the Kurds. In a way, that's very similar to the discussion in Israel coming from, you know, the the government and particularly from Netanyahu's party, always underlining that the opposition is backed by Palestinians. That is very much a theme here in election after election, accusing the opposition, even CHP, of being backed by a group that the government associates with with essentially terrorism. Talking about resets, Asla, the government has really backed itself in it into a corner, it seems, internationally and almost in a kind of splendid Turkish isolation. Has the government seen any opportunities in the COVID-19 crisis to reach out to other countries or to reframe the way it behaves on the international scene? So, Hugh, I suppose by splendid Turkish isolation, you're referring to Ibrahim Kalin's, uh, I think it was 2004, 15 uh, or 16 uh, term that talks about Turkish foreign policy. If it's an isolation, it's an honorable one. That was what he meant. Defending Turkey's sort of slightly isolated position. But yes, to go to your question, there is a new Turkey. And this new Turkey has a different self-image. I call this the Turkish Zonderweg, borrowing a term from German historiography, in the sense that I think Turkey's decision makers right now, particularly President Erdogan, thinks of Turkey as a lone wolf in a, in a world of great power competition. And that its interests are not necessarily to always go with the West. Go with the West when your interests overlap and go around the West when it doesn't overlap. But more important than that, I think there is a sense in this country with sort of a very heightened nationalist rhetoric and, you know, lots and lots of uh, references to the glory days of the Ottoman Empire there is a sense here that the Turkey is destined to be one of the great powers of the 21st century in an age of geopolitical competition. So you see like a huge emphasis on defense industry, huge emphasis on bringing back the Ottoman Empire as the motive, as a forward-looking ideal. And I think this is, of course, you know, there are questions about capacity. Question: Turkey is a mid-sized power, despite the image you would get if you turn on the television here. So there are issues about capacity, there are issues about uh, strategy and discussions about these in Turkey. But at the end of the day, the domestic narrative that was used in election campaigns has now become 
the guiding principle in Turkey's foreign policy, Turkey's Zonderwerk, that it's going to go on its own non-aligned course. Uh, in many ways, I call this a non-aligned Turkey. It wants to have a foot in each camp, but not be exclusively part of a camp. So it's going to work with the West, work with Europe, work with China, work with Russia and, and the US, but not really be tied down. And that's very openly expressed in this country at this point. I mean, what I'm telling you is told to us daily that Turkey is so powerful now that it can choose and pick and choose its alliances. Uh, we, we just have to see what the 21st century brings about, I guess. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace. Hugh Pope and I are talking to Asla Aydantashbash about Turkey and its response to COVID-19 and its evolving foreign policy. Asla, what you've described, this very activist, independent foreign policy approach, how is that working out? I mean, Turkey's relationship with a lot of its NATO allies is strained. It has, on paper, a great relationship with Moscow, but the two countries clash recently, it seems almost literally, on militarily in Syria. They disagree on an awful lot. So what's your take? How is this going? Beauty is very much in the eye of the beholder. From Obviously, Turkey is paying a huge price for having strained relations with its NATO partners, with the United States, its longest ally, not just in strategic terms, not only in Syria, but elsewhere in the world, in Eastern Mediterranean for sure, but you know, also in, on the economic front. But again, the reason I said beauty is in the eye of the beholder, domestically, Turkey's policy in, towards a sort of more interventionist policy in Libya and in Syria, and a desire to have a military footprint elsewhere in the Middle East, such as a base in Qatar, other in Somali, uh, these are all seen as milestones into a greater Turkey. And there's a name for this concept called the New Turkey. President Erdogan has told us this is the birthday of new Turkey. I think it was in 2015 or so he mentioned this. And so let's take Libya, for example. Turkey's intervention in Libya is, when I speak to Turkish officials, the vision they lay out is us against all of them. You know, UAE, the Axis, Egypt, Haftar, you name it. But uh, they say this is a necessity, that if we don't support the UN-recognized GNA in Libya, we will be locked out of the entire eastern Mediterranean, not be able to move a ship, not be, be frozen out of the hydrocarbon resources, etc. So you have a situation in which Turkey's lonely and assertive foreign policy is seen here as a necessity and described as a necessity, otherwise they're all after us. It's a bit of bombing your way to the table, right? That if you're activist enough, maybe you don't get precisely what you've intervened or become activist for, but you at least get your voice into the debate and otherwise you might be ignored. Is that the argument? That is the argument, but also that, you know, I think Turkey does see an anti-Turkey axis in the region. They're very open about UAE. They're very open about Egypt. They're very open about Haftar and some of these actors. At times, Israel is mentioned in this group. So I think there is a sense that Turkey needs to be assertive and out there. If not, it will be in a more difficult situation. 
And Turkey's intervention in Libya has taken place at a time of European vacuum, so to speak. Europe has not been terribly involved in the crisis and has made Turkey a relevant actor in the Berlin process and in the international scene. So I think they, they think of it in the same way for Syria as well, that if it weren't for successive Turkish incursions, that Turkey would not have become a relevant actor in the future of Syria. So it's open to debate. Some domestic critics of governments assertive policy, think of Turkey's interventions in Syria and Libya as uh, more of a burden, as uh, a situation that creates us against them and situation in international in the international community and actually does undercut Turkey's interests. But that's not at all how the government sees it. But Asla, you've talked very clearly about Turkey's size issue. It's a mid-sized power. It has an enormous number of areas that it can potentially get involved with, as you said, from Libya, Syria, Somalia, and so on. Where does the mid-sized part start to cut in? I mean, uh, it's all very well sending aid to Italy to help it with COVID-19, but how much can Turkey actually afford? So when do you know? That's the question. How do you know what the reality is? How can you measure it? I mean, it's very difficult to differentiate, you know, domestic narrative from the reality. And the place that it where it hits home at the end of the day, inevitably, is the economy, of course. At the end of the day, if you are in a situation where Uh, a significant portion of your population is doing poorly, is not happy with their economic prospects, unemployment is rising, inflation is rising, your currency is losing value. That's where the point where domestic propaganda starts ringing a little bit shallow. In Turkey's case, I think they've done quite miraculously economically because the macro situation has not been terribly good since the coup attempt in 2016. But one of the strategic choices this government has has made has been to pursue a high growth model with big public spending. You know about the mega projects uh, President Erdogan really not only likes, but he thinks of them as calling, so to speak. I mean, something that will be a legacy for the next generation. So biggest airport in the world, big bridge across the Dardanelles, suspension bridge, another big bridge between Istanbul and Ego. We've continued to build uh, these mega projects at a time when the economy slowed down because that was seen as the way to keep things going. I think if you allow President Trump, he would probably do do the same with major infrastructure projects. But the one advantage Amer- United States Fed is the institution that prints dollars. In the case of Turkey, the, this came at a huge price, which was the serious reduction in central bank reserves also because they had to compensate for declining Turkish currency by way of essentially pumping dollars into the market and trying to keep the Turkish lira at its current level. Uh, So what you have now, which is why Financial Times has pointed out the situation as a bit of a danger for Turkish economy, is alarmingly low central bank reserves when it comes to U.S. dollars. So this could go very badly economically. I think this could go badly economically. There's no doubt. And COVID makes it worse. I mean, Turkey is in a very different... I mean, this is what we started the conversation with, that Turkey is facing a difficult economic situation. And it sounds like put that together with potentially foreign affairs overreach, 
you've got a problem on your hands. How does it manifest? What will Turks do if they're unhappy? Social media, you don't have the avenues to express social grievances that other countries have. So it's a far more inward looking atmosphere in terms of expressing social discontent. Votes and elections is, of course, important. Don't forget that we recently had the summer of 2019, just this past summer, local elections whereby the government party lost all major cities with the exception of one. So that's clearly one indication. You know, I think that unemployment figures don't really need explaining. Youth unemployment is around 25, 26%. So that's a very high figure. Do you want to talk about hopes on the horizon? I mean, that's quite a down uh, place to end. And as we know, Turkey tends to be terribly resilient until suddenly something breaks. As a non-economist, I feel like something's got to give in the sense that, you know, sort of big external engagements and COVID-19 crisis, slowing down of the economy, And yet, you know, limited resources that going down further with the slowdown of the economy and the stimulus package and the handouts now. So one avenue would be perhaps for Turkey to tap into this new IMF fund that is announced or perhaps measures that eventually such as capital controls and whatnot. I think at some point something would have to give either cut down on spending maybe domestically or But spending at this rate with limited resources just does not seem to add up at this point for Turkey. Ashla, as we know, the Turkish government often seems to be able to spend for much longer than economists ever think is possible. And then there's a bit of a sudden break and a collapse of the lira and then Turkey gets going again. And a very resilient country, ultimately. COVID-19 is striking everyone. Has it had any social impact? For instance, is political polarization as bad as it was? Are people rallying around the government to any extent? Not Really, it hasn't had much of an impact on polarization yet, but I think that we're still early in this crisis. So uh, further in due time towards the summer, if perhaps Turkish economy forces the government to seek more international support, collaboration, that may be one of the positives sort of Turkey that does consider, you know, revisiting its old allies for nothing, for economic reasons, that would be very important, including Europe. And then uh, I would say that generally, my own experience is people are very much nicer and supportive on the street and, you know, old friends calling up. All of that is happening, I think, universally. It's happening in other parts of the world. But in terms of polarization, just like United States, it has not really made much of a dent. So, Asla, I think we'll, we're going to have to close on that because we are out of time. But obviously, a lot to keep an eye on uh, going forward. Really an interesting dynamic. I'm also very curious how social discontent gets expressed when everyone is locked in their home. But that's for another podcast. Big thanks to Asla Aydantashbash for joining us here on War and Peace. War and Peace is a podcast of the Europod Network, as well as a podcast from International Crisis Group. Big thanks for Miranda Sunnix, who makes sure that the logistics work each time we record and put one of these out. And big thanks to all of you, our listeners. And a goodbye from me too, Hugh Pope. And you can see all our work on Turkey and its relations with the region on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.